You know, as I said this morning, we've, we've been going through Romans 9, and uh, um, I was kind of up in the air whether to um, continue our, our study right through that uh, today because of, of the missions update, took some time, and then as well as communion. So um, we're going to take a little break, but I am going to read from uh, Romans 9 for you this morning, so you can turn there um, in your Bibles, Romans 9. In just way of reminder, uh, last week we looked at the, uh, the message, Is God Unfair? And we focused in on these scriptures in Romans chapter 9. And as we've said previously, these are very weighty sections of scripture. These are things that you should go home scratching your head. Uh, this should make you think at night. Um, this is something that is, is not uh, kind of a lighthearted subject, but it is something that we want to do uh, uh, the right thing and teach through this section uh, of, of the Scriptures. I'm amazed at how many times I, I look at series people teaching through Romans and all of a sudden they don't have anything on Romans 9. Uh, it's just kind of crazy. Um, but... Uh, Follow along as I read uh, this section of Scripture. We're going to begin right there in uh, verse um, 13. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And last week we just looked at at three quick points and we raised the matter of basically the first point we looked at was as righteous, sovereign God over all, it's outrageous to think that God could treat anyone unjustly or unfairly. That's just not a question that we can, we can ask it, but it, it's something that's not possible. And, and I really would ask you to go back and to really study the attributes of God, that God is holy, God is pure, God is uh, loving, he's, he's gracious. Um, all these things, he's all-knowing, all these things fall within the realm of God and who he is. And, and I'm really convinced that over years in ministry, I've seen Christians struggle, and when I really begin to ask and probe, you know, trying to figure out why are they struggling so much in their faith, it comes down to that very thing, that they have a lack of knowledge, they have a kind of a, an ignorance, you might say, about who God is. It's not that they're not saved, but they don't fully understand the God who saved them. And so once you begin to understand that more fully, a lot of these pieces of the puzzle begin to fit together. Um, and so the second thing we looked at last week was as the righteous sovereign overall, God is free to show mercy to whoever he wishes. And um, that's not our call. You know, we have to be okay with that. Uh, we're not God. He is. And even down in verses uh, 15 and, and 16, 
when he says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That is something that, that God willingly decides. And, uh, you know, we, we have to be good with that. And the third thing we looked at last week was as the righteous sovereign overall, God is free to harden whom he wishes to display his glory. And this is where I was kind of caught up in the, in the air this week a little bit about should I go even go into this subject this week and I decided to wait because I, I couldn't really just do it justice. You know, we've talked about the doctrine of election. We've talked about the, the doctrine, you know, of our salvation and, and what that all entails. And see, the other side of the doctrine of election is really the doctrine of, of reprobation, which basically is the other side of election. And this isn't, you know, double predestination. God doesn't select everybody before the foundation of the world and, and sit down and say, okay, I'm, I'm choosing you for salvation and, you know, you're, you're, I'm choosing you for, for damnation. Um, and so we're going to be looking at that beginning next week. And so it's, it's a subject that is kind of overwhelming in a lot of ways, but um, it's something that we, we have to look at if we're going to deal with this, this text. And so it's important to understand that as we look at all this, all this doctrine, how does this come down to, you know, our, our communion time today? And so I just thought I would share with you four reminders concerning communion, just four brief reminders. And, um, and I think that it's, it's good sometimes to, to take a breather and to reflect on what communion is to and what it means to us, a lot of times as a church, we just kind of, you know, tag it on at the end of the service, and we have a message on something maybe completely different. But today, I just want to share briefly with you um, about these four reminders of communion. Because, you know, the, the fact is, is that God has given us communion so that we can have a picture in our minds to remind us, no matter what happens, that God is in control. That God is in control. Um, the picture of the cross that Jesus died on is that very picture. The fact that God is in control. Think about it. 2,000 some years ago, when Jesus died on the cross, you know, the enemy, Satan, thought, wow, this is a victory. This is victor victory for me. Um, he thought when Jesus died that he killed God's son, and that was it. But three days later, right, surprise, the Lord rose from the dead. And God showed us that he is in control and he has been in control from the very beginning. We serve a sovereign God, beloved. Um, Jesus knew from the beginning of his ministry what was going to happen. He told his disciples, I'm going to die. And three days later... I'm going to be raised again. He knew exactly where he was headed. Now, they didn't always get it, right? They didn't, it was hard for them to put the pieces of the puzzle together. But he knew exactly where he was headed. And the crucifixion is really the ultimate example to us of the fact, the simple fact that no matter what happens, and this is, you can dial it right down to your own personal life. No matter what happens, even in your own personal life, God is in control of our lives. 
the good, the bad, the ugly, whatever might happen. If you're a child of God, God is in sovereign control of these things. And even if you're not, he's in sovereign control of things. No matter what happens in our lives. Um, I mean, if you could kind of fast forward in time from the Roman Empire and come into our time, and, you know, if, if somehow they could see us wearing crosses around our necks, those little gold things that people wear, um, most people from that era would be horrified. They would look at you like you've lost your mind. Why? Because a cross was an instrument of death. But you know what? Jesus changed all that. When Jesus died on the cross, okay, everything changed. When he rose from the dead, everything changed. And by dying on the cross, when you and I look at a cross, what do we look at? We don't look at an instrument of death. We look at an instrument of hope. We we look at at something that that gives our faith hope. All right? Um, When we were down in in Mexico uh, several weeks ago, we were walking around in some of these big cathedrals they have. And I'll tell you what. I mean, some of the places we walked into, it was very disheartening. I mean, in one place, they were actually, they were literally having a funeral. I mean, they had the casket right there. And there's tourists, like, just like barging in. I didn't even go in because I thought, well, that wouldn't be right. But I did walk up to the door, and, and I was kind of peering in. And I looked behind the altar, and there behind the altar was this huge, humongous statue of Mary. And I sat there, and I looked, and I thought, whoa. I mean, they don't even have a cross behind the altar anymore. And I looked over in the corner, and there was Christ on the, on the cross. Small little. And I thought, wow, what, what is wrong with this picture? I mean, even the cross that they have, it still has the Savior on it. Where is the hope in that? And we have to stop and we have to be reminded that, you know what? Christ is no longer on the cross, beloved. That he is risen. That he is not on the cross. He doesn't have to be crucified over and over and over again. We don't have an altar up here for that very reason. I'm not a priest in that sense that I come out and make sacrifice for the sins of the people. That was already done. As our brother, brother read this morning, we're, we're all priests in that sense. We've all been called into a holy priesthood. And so when we look at the cross, we can see something that brings us hope. We can see forgiveness. We can see love. We don't necessarily see an instrument of death. But it's good that when we have communion that we pause and we, re- we are reminded that, you know what, that's exactly what the cross is. It's an instrument of death. Because someone had to pay the price for our sins. You know, once a year we celebrate... Christmas. You know, it's good to celebrate Christmas. I was listening to somebody's message the other day. He, he was uh, is actually Crystal's uh, pastor in Hawaii. And he said, you know, you might think this is weird, but after my last child's birthday, I think it was in early October, we start celebrating for Christmas. He said, we watch all the Christmas movies. And, and, and I thought, you know, that's kind of neat. 
you know, Christmas is a wonderful time of the year. And I know that it gets all the marketing mixed up with the true message of what Christmas is all about. But a lot of us put a lot of effort into that celebration. Some of us more than others. But it's good to celebrate the birth of Christ. Is it not? I mean, amen, right? But not once in the Bible, not once, does God command us to celebrate the birth of Christ. Doesn't tell us to do that. Now, it's a good thing to do. I mean, it should be celebrated, I would think. But he doesn't command us to do it. He does not command us to celebrate that in in any way. But the interesting thing is, he does command us to celebrate the death of Christ. Uh, We celebrate it as we take communion, the Lord's Supper. For believers, we take communion, and it's a celebration of the simple fact that Jesus died for us. He died in our place. Um, As we see people baptized, it's a celebration of the fact that Jesus Christ was resurrected for us. As a matter of fact, a lot of times when someone's baptized, they'll say, you know, buried in the likeness of his death and raised to the newness of life. And they'll bring them up out of the water. It's a picture of what happens to us as sinners. We are transformed. We die and we become a brand new person in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new, the Bible says. And so before we share this time together this morning of communion... I just want to remind you of four things. First of all, first thing there is I want you to remember that the Lord's Supper, communion, it's, it's not rocket science. It's very simple. It's a very simple act. We don't do some hocus pocus and turn these elements into something that they're not. I mean, that's, you know, that doesn't happen. It's not complicated. This is simple bread and it's simple juice. Um, it doesn't have to be elaborate. It shouldn't be elaborate. We don't add a lot of things to it. We just like this to speak for itself to your hearts. Because that's where the truth is. In this celebration of our Lord's death. So it's, it's something that's it's not complicated. This is a table that's open for all those who have put their faith or trust in Christ. If you're here today and you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this table is open to you. Whether you're a member of Grace Bible Church in Redwood City or not is irrelevant. The more important thing is, are you a member of God's family? Are you, have you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because if you haven't, this really doesn't mean anything to you. This is just bread and juice. It's not even wine, okay? It's just juice. <laughs> I remember one year we were having, we were having communion, and, and one older saint lady in the back, you could hear her say, this isn't even wine. <laughs> I thought, whoa. And she didn't say it quietly either. Um, it's just juice. But it, what it represents is so much bigger. And so it's, it's just simple Simple that. And if you're not a believer here this morning, I, I understand that. Maybe you're on a journey and, and, and you haven't, you know, uh, come to that faith in Christ yet where we pray for you, pray that you do. But until you do, this is something you'd probably just pass the, the, the plate by. 
Nobody's going to look at you. Nobody's going to make anything about you. know, this is just something that's, that's meant for believers. The second thing is the Lord's Supper is also a reminder to us of what's really central, I think, in our faith. Um, the love of Jesus Christ was shown on the cross. Um, God knew that the church would be around all these years. He wanted to make sure that, that we never lost focus of the love that he has for his church. And every time we see and every time we experience communion together, that should be a reminder that God really, really loves us. Um, Jesus said to his disciples, when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Remember me when you do this. So when we take the bread and we eat it, we remember that Jesus' body was given for us. Uh, when we take the juice together and we partake together after it's all passed out, we remember that, that Jesus' blood was spilled for us. Uh, and that's very significant. And it should be significant every time we do it. As believers, we come together and we, 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 we eat and we drink to remember. We remember the truth that God loves us no matter what. Well, the third thing that we see is that the Lord's Supper is also, it's a symbol. It's a picture. It's a symbol of what God has done for us on our behalf. When we take that little cracker and we eat it, this isn't Jesus' body. Uh, you know, I come from a faith background, the Catholic Church, that teaches that the priest somehow, through transubstantiation, miraculously turns that little wafer into the body of Christ. I mean, that's really bizarre if you think about it. It's just bizarre. And yet that's what they believe. Um, that's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches it's just a symbol it's a symbol or picture of Jesus' body. Um, if I held up a picture of my granddaughter, Gabby, today's her birthday, by the way. <laughs> but if I held a picture up of her today, and I said, this is, this is my granddaughter, Gabby. You would know that that's, what, a picture. That's a symbol of her. That's not really her. She's not really here. All right, that's just a picture of her. And that's exactly what, what this, this bread and this juice is. It's a symbol of Christ. The Lord's Supper is just like that. It's a picture of us of what God has done for us. Um, in a symbolic way, you know, we say, thank you, God, for what you've done. You know, we, we want to thank the Lord for his work in our lives. We want to thank the Lord that, you know, in his sovereignty, he reached out and he touched us. And that we came to Christ. You know, I don't know about you, but I just didn't wake up one day and say, you know what, I think I'll just become a Christian. <laughs> that sounds like a good idea. Getting a little tired of this church, I think I'll... No. And, and we could go around the room and share our testimony. And we could share person after person how God supernaturally, what? Intervened in our lives. Why? Because God is sovereign. God, God calls us to... To himself. He draws us by his grace, by his mercy. And for that, we should ever be thankful for it. 
Thank God for what he's done. When Jesus said, I'm the door of life, we all recognize he didn't have a, a doorknob. He was giving us a picture. He wasn't literally saying he's a door. When Jesus said, this is my body, he was giving us a picture of his love for us. And the last thing here, the Lord's Supper is a statement of faith. If, if, if nothing else, it's, it's that. Because when I take the Lord's Supper, it's not just something that we do, you know, once a month on the first Sunday of the month, and we've kind of gotten into almost a, a habit of doing that. But it's, it, it should be mean much more than that. And so many times we can take this bread and we can take this juice and we don't even think. You know, our mind's already gone to, oh, I wonder if the Warriors are going to win tonight. I mean, you know, we're just, you know, let's get this thing over with. Um, and, it, and it shouldn't be that way. Because that's not how it was for the disciples. That's not how it was for Christ. It meant something. And it should really be a statement of our faith to God. Uh, and here's how it kind of works. When, when you and I take the Lord's Supper, we're looking back at the cross. We're looking back to the cross. And it's a statement of faith. We're saying, you know what? As I look back to that faith, God, I recognize that you love me. You know, I may not particularly feel that way this morning. But you know what? By faith, I recognize that you love me. By faith, I realize that, God, you forgave me. You forgave me of all of my sins. When I said to Jesus Christ, you know what? I want you to, to come and be my Savior. I mean, that should be something that we should be thankful for. It's a looking back in faith. But it's even, I would say it's even more than that. First um, Corinthians chapter 11, it teaches us that it's also looking forward in faith. Um, we look ahead in faith to the fact that someday, what? Jesus Christ is going to come again. I mean, I don't know how you feel when you read verses that talk about the coming of the Lord. But, you know, I just get a little bit excited. Like, is it going to be today? Could it be this afternoon? Maybe we don't even have to worry about the warriors or the sharks or whoever. I mean, maybe we'll be out of here by the end of the service. You don't know. And what a glorious thing to be focused on. Because it really helps us keep our, our, our priorities and our minds in perspective. The scripture tells us, Paul tells us, you know what? Set your mind on what? Things above. Don't allow this, this world to captivate your mind. Set your things on things above. And you know what? That's, that's really what we need to be encouraged to do. We look ahead in faith to the fact that someday Jesus Christ will come again. We look ahead in faith and recognize that this world, even though it seems like it's out of control, got a lot of things going on. Got a lot of economic things going on. You got a lot of weather issues going on. You got a lot of political issues going on. I mean, it looks like the wheels are falling off the, the, the cart. But you know what? When we look at the cross, we realize, you know what? Nothing's out of control. God is perfectly in control of everything. And one day, Christ is going to return. 
He's going to come back, and everything is going to be just the way he wants it to be. The Bible teaches that as we share in this Lord's Supper this morning, just that we're, we're called to really reflect on what this means to us. Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul gives them instructions. He says, but in the following, in verse, in verse 17, he says, but in the following instructions, I do not command you, because when you come together, listen to this, it is not for the better, but for the worse. <laughs> they weren't in a good place. And he goes on and he tells them why in verse 18. He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? I don't think so. Paul is being very clear here. He's telling them just the way it is. And you know what? A lot of times communion forces us to look inward, to look at our own heart, to look at our own life. Is it a life that has been honoring to Christ these past days, these past weeks? Or have we gotten off on the rail and done some things that are not honoring to Christ? Well, now's the time that you confess those things to God. And you thank him for his forgiveness if you're one of his children. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, now's the time to cry out to him and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's not a person in this room who hasn't committed some kind of sin in some sort of way. We've all sinned. The Bible declares that. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And isn't it a wonderful, beautiful thing that God has given us a sacrifice to cover all those sins? To forgive us of all of our sins. So he says in verse 23, he goes on, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This wasn't cannibalism. Jesus wasn't passing around pieces of his fingers for them to chew on. Okay, this was a symbol, like we said earlier. This was a picture of his body. In verse 25, he says, In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it, look at once again, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you will proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that's really what we're called to do as believers. We're, we're called to proclaim the Lord's death, the Lord's resurrection, until he comes. 
That's what the gospel is all about. That's what missions is all about. And he gives a word of warning here in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. And to prevent that, here's what we're to do in verse 28. He says, let a person what? Examine himself. Stop and, and, and examine your own heart. Don't nudge your neighbor. Don't look at your spouse. This is a very personal time. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And this is very serious because he concludes in verse 30. He says, that's, his, that's why many of you are, will, are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. So that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And Paul obviously had some other things he had to share with them, but he said, you know what, I'll, I'll deal with that when I come. So as we come to our communion time this morning, um, basically we want this time to be a, a time of self-examination where you look at your own heart. And um, to do that, we're just going to spend just a brief time in just personal prayer, just quiet before the Lord. And then uh, as the worship team comes up, we're going to stand and sing a song together, and then we'll actually have our, our communion time together.